0: This is Real Estate
1: Rookie, episode 260.
0: The tax benefit of a lease option is that the options money you get up front, um, you don't have to pay taxes on it until later on when the option is exercised. During the lease option term, you still own the real estate, which means you continue to get the depreciation benefits, the write-offs and things like that. Um, So it's getting more money up front um but also retaining the tax benefits because you still are the owner
1: my name is ashley Kerr, and i'm here with my co-host tony robinson
2: and welcome to the real estate rookie podcast where every week twice a week we bring you the inspiration motivation and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey i want to start today's episode by shouting out someone by the username of leo zang and leo left a five-star review on apple Podcasts that says gold mine for real estate investment tons of valuable information and suggestions for real estate investors. You will find the roadmaps to success here with like four exclamation marks. So Leo, we appreciate you. And for all of our rookies that are listening, if you had not yet left us an honest reading review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen, please do. The more reviews we get, the more folks we can reach, the more folks we can reach, more folks we can help. And that is what we like to do here at the Real Estate Rookie Podcast. So Ashley care. what's up?
1: Well, we are... A week away. Well, days away, not even a week away from your short-term rental conference, the summit. And uh, I've been nervously checking the weather because each time I go somewhere, it's bad weather. I (laughs) I did get the the email from your event planner today saying there is a chance of rain uh, over the weekend. So I really hope that that it's not me that's bringing it because I need warm weather. I'm super (laughs) excited. It does say 80s.
2: Yeah, So hopefully it'll be warm, not not too crazy. Um you know, Florida, you know, the, the weather's always unpredictable. But yeah, we're we're excited. Um we, we leave in like less than 48 hours to take off and we'll actually we actually almost spend almost a week in Orlando because we've got some stuff to do before, hanging out a little bit afterwards, going to Disney World with the team and stuff. But we're we're pumped. We're going to have like almost 400 people there, so it should be a fun fun couple of days. And I'm glad you're coming.
1: Yeah, and I'm bringing my mom and my kids. Uh, so they're just coming for the weekend there. We're flying down Friday night and then they'll fly back Sunday night. And then, you know, I'll stay for a couple more days, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, just a great excuse to have a family. Vacation. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, we, we've been traveling a ton cause we had, uh, Rob from the, the real estate show. He had his short term rental event in Houston last week. Um, so Sarah and I went there and I, I spoke on stage for a little bit and then we came home and it was uh, a slew of birthdays so it was Sarah's birthday yesterday it was her sister my sister-in-law's birthday two days before that and it was my cousin who's like one of my best friends birthday in between their birthdays so it's just been like literally non-stop so I'm, I'm excited after the summer we'll get to like relax for a couple of weeks before we we keep moving so
1: yeah yeah hey, I have a question for you before we actually get into the episode Our yeah what are like some of the things you look for when you decide what conferences you are going to attend so maybe you're not even like obviously ones you are asked to speak at but what are some things you look at
2: that is a fantastic question ashley um i i, I think the majority of the conferences i've been to as of late i've gone as a speaker mm-hmm. um so that that's kind of been the main driver but honestly like as i think about the things that i want i want to learn it's not even necessarily um, real estate, like real estate strategies at this point. Like I think what I'm more so focused on at this point in my career is uh, like the business principles to support my real estate business, right? So, and those are the kind of things that I'm starting to look for. Um, I haven't really bought a ticket for any new one, but that anyway, that's what I'm looking for. Actually, let me let me let me rephrase my answer. There's one thing that I'm really looking to get exceptionally good at in short term rentals, and that is uh revenue management. So there's so much that goes into pricing your properties the right way. And uh, there's a big conference over the summer that we'll be going to um, that, that kind of has a deep dive into that topic specifically. So that's the one real estate thing I'm really focused on. What about what about you?
1: Yeah, well, I had somebody, my son had his football banquet this past weekend, and I had someone come up to me and say they have two short-term rentals, and I've talked to them about it before, but they're like, we are just ready. She was uh, an attorney and actually has retired as an attorney to kind of focus on their real estate. And she's like, I just want to learn more about these short-term rentals we have and, you know, how to maximize them and run them better and all these things. And so she's like, I just don't know what conferences to go to and all these things. And she's like, as an attorney, I did conferences, like, all the time. She's like, I'm sick of them, but, like, I know I should get back into it for the short-term rentals. I was like, I know exactly which one you should go to. I was like, there's going to be one in Austin. I'm going to the one in Florida. And I was like... I went to when I went to the one that was in Newport Beach. I went on stage and I did a shot of tequila. Okay, <laughs> not your normal conference, but anyway, I thought it was such a great question. As to like, I don't even know which ones to attend and what to add value. So maybe we can actually do a rookie reply on that as to like how to vet your, you know, conferences that you're attending. And I think you made a great point as to like figuring out what you actually want to get out of the conference first, and then kind of narrowing it down from there too.
2: Yeah, I, you know, there, there's so much information out there. I, I think most conferences that are put on, you will probably get some value from. I think what's more important is your level of preparation going into that event. Like, by conferences are those things like where you get out what you put in and if you're in there you're taking good notes and then after the event you're spending some time to you know like like let that information like actually percolate in your mind and identify how you can use it and then you implement that stuff that's where you really get the value but i think the unfortunate truth is that you see a lot of conference junkies who go from one conference to the next and they're you know they're well known at these different places but they aren't actually implementing what they're learning when they go there so they're not getting the full benefit from it. So I think to prep beforehand is probably what's most important.
1: Yeah, I agree. Like the one thing I like to do is like at the end of the day is just like sit down and jot down what I learned or like what's the action I want to take care of and usually by like the end of a conference, I'm just like itching to like get home and get back to work. Like those flights home after a conference are like the most productive, productive time I have to totally. am So motivated for all the people i met, everything like that and it's just like getting stuff done and things I wanna do and yeah.
2: It, you know, just last thing, like our friend Tyler Madden actually told me that he does this, but, cause he and I, we've been to two different like conferences together. And both times he almost always spends an extra day after the conference in the city and he uses that extra day to really go through everything that he learned over the course of that conference. So I think I might say that from our friend Tyler and, and add like a buffer day after each event so I can just sit down and really deep dive. What did I learn? How can I implement it? And so on.
1: And just like to get caught up on work from like being at the conference. Because like I, the last time we recorded, we both had pulled all-nighters. And one reason you had is because you were at a conference all day. So like at night you had to do your work. Sure. So like being able to still be Like on your trip and to kind of like relax, be in a different setting than your house, because when you get home, you have to do laundry, you have to unpack, you have house stuff to do, you got kids to take care of, things like that. So like having that extra day to get caught up. And I think that's a great point, too, is doing those, um, you know, taking the information you learn from the conference and kind of putting it into action. So, uh, with me taking my kids this week, I think it's a kind of a great segue into a guest that we're actually having on the rookie reply is, you know, I'm going to a conference. This is a business write off. My kids are coming with me. My mom is coming with me as a nanny and they get to hang out at the pool all day and have fun. And, you know, so, um, uh, that is definitely a great way to maximize mm-hmm. business travel is taking, uh, your kids with you and turning it into a little vacation for them, uh, So, we are bringing on Amanda Hahn, who we did a full episode with for episode 255. And we are going to have her answer some of your reply questions. So, make sure you guys listen to the end to hear Amanda answer your questions.
2: Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed. 2.99% rent to Retirements offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit rent dot retirementcom That's rent t-o, retirement, dot retirementcom Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777.
4: Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Okay, our next question is from Katie. If you purchase a property using personal private money and use personal money for rehab and plan to use the property as an Airbnb, what is the seasoning period before you can go to a bank and refinance it to pay off the private money loan and use proceeds for another investment? This is a great question because it really depends on the bank. I've seen it where there is no seasoning period, but very typical is six months to 12 months. So um, my business partner, he's purchasing a primary residence that he used hard money. Now he's going to refinance with the bank. And the one bank that he's talking to right now, it's a 12-month seasoning period. Uh, Tony, what are you typically seeing?
2: Yeah, I think it varies as well. Um, We've seen, so like when I first started investing in the bank that I was using, it it was no seasoning period. Like as soon as your rehab was complete, you were able to refinance. However, it was only a rate and term refi. So essentially you weren't able to pull out any additional capital, you were just paying off that initial mortgage that was on there. So like for me, I'd in I had increased the value of the property by whatever, fifty, seventy, a hundred thousand dollars, but I couldn't tap into that equity. I could only refinance up to an amount that was equal to the existing debt. Um so yeah, like you said, I think it varies by the bank. Um, In the short-term rental space, though, uh, typically they do, and most banks that I've talked to, uh, they typically do want to see somewhere between 6 to 12 months because they need some proof as to what kind of income that property will produce as a short-term rental. There are some banks out there that are now doing their own projections and underwriting to say, hey, we think this property will do X, Y, Z as a short-term rental, but most banks still want to see at least six months of actual booked revenue um, in order to do that refinance as a short-term rental.
1: Tony, you brought up a great point, point, as and I think we should highlight this, is that there is a difference between refinancing and doing a cash-out refinance. So, how your bank didn't have the seasoning period, but they would let you, they would allow you to refinance the property as to what the existing debt is. And typically, this is based off what the purchase price is for the property. And they're probably going to give you the same loan to value that the first lender did onto the property. So, that's one thing my business partner just ran into now is that he can refinance at any time with this small local bank. But he can only pull out 80% of the purchase price of the property. And that won't include any of the rehab. But if he waits 12 months, then he'll be able to pull out whatever the appraised value is, 80% of the appraised value of the property. Um, So that's definitely something you should be doing before you're purchasing a property is talking to banks, talking to loan officers and finding out that information before you go ahead and purchase the property so you know what you can kind of have your game plan, your timeline spread out.
2: Yeah, the the bank I actually worked with, they were slightly different because it it wasn't just the purchase price. They actually did allow me to to include the rehab cost in there as well, but it was only because they lent on it was a construction loan that they owned oh. so they said here's a construction loan for you to purchase and do the rehab and then we'll convert you to like long-term debt there afterwards so but that's the beauty of it is that there are so many different lending institutions out there banks credit unions, small big medium um and Every single one is going to have a kind of a different flavor in terms of what they can offer. But, Ash, what we didn't define is seasoning period. So, maybe you want to define what that is for folks who maybe aren't familiar with that phrase.
1: Yeah. So, the seasoning period is how long the property is, uh, gaining value is getting valued so it's like letting your property sit because a bank is looking at your property and if you go and refinance in 30 days they're going to say wait you're you just bought it for 200,000 and now you're saying it's worth 300,000 30 days later so they want that seasoning period for the property to appreciate and to you know for you to add value to it, it doesn't make sense um not really, especially if you're going in and you're blowing a hundred grand to, you know, appreciate this property, but the seasoning period is where they want to see the appreciation on that property. And and not always there's not always going to be appreciation there either.
2: And I, I think I've what I've seen most cases, Ash, and let me know if it's the same thing on your end, is that typically that seasoning period doesn't start from the day that you purchase it it starts from the day that the rehab is complete so like if you're doing a a burr and they want to see like six months what i've been told from the banks that i work with is usually it's six months after the rehab is complete is it the same for the lenders that you work with on in your neck of the woods
1: no if i'm just going to a bank and i haven't used any kind of you know existing financing with them like i used hard money or private money or cash to purchase I'm going to do that refinance. The seasoning period starts the day that you purchase, purchase the property. Yeah. On the residential side at least, on the commercial side I've seen that you can refinance it anytime.
2: Talk about that then. Like why like like so you're saying on the commercial side as soon as you buy, if you rehab it in a day theoretically, they allow you to refinance on on day 2.
1: Yeah, so to give you an example, this is like one of my favorite financing deals ever and this happened in 2018, 2019, maybe where I went to a bank and I said, you know, I want to purchase this property. What can I do? And they actually said, we can give you a 90 day unsecured loan. So this was a no collateral. And this was what I was going to go and purchase the property for. They wrote me a check for the exact amount to purchase the property. And the next, as so we closed on the property and the deal was, is that I would go with the same bank to refinance it and put long-term financing on it. Well, when I went to purchase, I purchased it with that that loan they gave me, that 90-day loan, and then I put in a $800 new fridge in one of the units. I got it rented out, and I think it was within two days of the purchase, we had the appraisal done. I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but we bought it for around $35,000, and it appraised for, I think, like around $50,000, and we were able to pull out like $42,000. And so we were able to take to pay off that ninety day loan, um, pay for that eight hundred dollar fridge. But that was just two weeks after closing, and we were able to go and refinance it on the commercial side of lending.
2: I wonder if that was because they they maybe took the line of credit more so as like a a cash purchase, um, and not necessarily like a mortgage that was secured by the property itself. Do you think that? had anything to do with it no
1: because like for this property um that my business partner is trying to purchase now like it is a it's was a cash purchase that he's paid i think it was a maybe a private money lender i don't remember exactly but he's it was it's like on paper it's a cash purchase and they still want that one year seasoning period it's doesn't have anything to do with the debt on it because they're going off of the purchase price where commercial lending they're looking at okay I put um, tenants in that property and um, it's added value that way and I do remember the bank being very shocked at how much it appraised for but that's also the value of buying under market like I know that we got a great deal on this property and that's why I purchased it and so I think the bank was actually kind of upset <laughs> that I was able to go and refinance and pull so much money out when I bought it for 35000 And then two weeks later, I'm able to pull out $42,000 out of that property. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, the commercial side, I have not, I haven't at least run into any situations where I can't, I have to have a seasoning period on the commercial side. And that's when the property is in an LLC. So, in this example that Katie gave us, she has the property in her personal name, where you most likely will have to use the residential side of the lending.
2: Interesting. Well, Katie, hopefully that that's helpful for you. And I'm I'm trying to think if there's any other like loan products that that might be beneficial. I mean, even even on the DSCR side, that that's what we've been kind of exploring for a lot of our short-term rental uh, purchases as of late. Um, if you are doing a rehab or anything like that, they they still typically want to see that seasoning period as well. Um, and for us, it was even, even if we weren't commercial, they still wanted to see it. Um, if you're using like a DSCR for short-term rental now, and just to give you like all the listeners, some, some context, like the, the lending space for short-term rentals is still incredibly like, uh, new and like, like the, the loan products you can get on the long-term rental side, haven't quite all made their way over to the short-term rental side. So you still do see, um, less options, kind of more hoops you have to jump through, Um, when you're trying to get loan products specifically built for short-term rentals, So um, keep searching, keep keep digging, and hopefully you'll find a bank that can kind of work with you.
1: Okay, so our next question is from Robin. Good morning, good morning. So at what points can you raise rents? In Oregon, each year you can raise rents at 9%. I can also raise rent after the lease is up, right? When can I make adjustments to the lease after it's up, right? Okay. So we kind of have two questions there on leasing um, and increasing those rents. So that's definitely uh, a hot topic I see, especially if you are inheriting tenants as to when you can actually increase the rent to market rents or you know, at least bring it up a little bit as to what the the rent is currently. Uh, So great question, Robin. The first thing I would say is that you have to know what your state laws are. So if you already know that you cannot raise it more than 9% nine percent of the current lease agreement this is definitely something you want to look into when you are purchasing the property to see how long it's going to take you to actually bring the rents up to market rent uh where I live in New York City in our county I know like in New York City there's some limits on what you can charge for rent but as far as where I'm currently investing outside of Buffalo New York there are no limits as to how much you can increase or what that um that rental price can be uh Tony, did you run into any of that when you were doing long-term rentals in Louisiana? Uh,
2: for us in Louisiana, luckily we didn't inherit any tenants. Um, so we didn't have to necessarily worry about um, increasing rents on anyone. Um, but uh, to your point, Ash, like if, if I were in a situation where I did have inherited tenants, I would want to know what is our current lease date and then what are the, the local laws and regulations and really lean on my, my property management company um, to kind of help give me the the rights I guess the right information on in terms of what that looks like because it is super sp- specific, right? And, and what we do in California and my city is probably super different than what Robins doing in, in Oregon and, and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, and I think a good resource is to look at your county or your city at some of the nonprofit organizations that the housing specialists. So in Buffalo, New York, there's. Belmont and Belmont actually gives out the Section Eight vouchers in our counties. So look into where people get a Section Eight voucher in your county. And a lot of times these organizations have free or very low cost training as to what these laws and regulations are, and especially like teaching landlords, you know, how you can appropriately increase the rent or how to handle that. Um, so I recommend looking for some kind of organization like that and taking one of the training classes. A lot of them even provide a book too with the updated tenant landlord laws or if you even go to your local town hall a lot of times they have pamphlets too like here's one for tenants things you should know and here's one for landlords things you should know Um, and then the second thing you can raise rent after the lease is up that is correct when somebody is currently in a lease You cannot raise their rent until the lease expires. So make sure you're looking at that information when you're purchasing the property and seeing when that lease agreement is up um, so that you can raise rent. And then also be cautious of giving proper notification. So in New York State, depending how long the person lived there, you have to give them so much notice that their rent is going to increase. So they live there less than a year. So their first one-year lease is coming up. You have to give them 30 days notice. If it was more than that, up to two years, then it's 60 days. And then after that, it goes up to 90 days notice. So make sure that you're planning for that too. Um, And then you can always, the last question of that was, when can I make adjustments to the lease? And that would be the same period as to when the lease is up. When you send that um, rent increase, you would also make the new lease with the changes in it.
2: Uh, Ashley, have you ever purchased a property where there were tenants in place, but no documented lease? Oh yes. And if so how to so how how do you handle that? Like do you do you come in and do you raise rents immediately if they're way below market rates? Or what what's your process to to kind of handle in that?
1: Yeah. So I bought a portfolio from an older investor who just, you know, had people send him money and it's kind of a handshake deal with most of his tenants. And uh so when you purchase in New York State, a lot of times when you uh fill out the real estate contract, it can have a rent rider addendum to it and this rent rider basically states like how many units they are what the person the tenant's name is what unit it is how much they're paying in rent and when their lease term is up so the investor had the seller had filled that out for me and then i went and i sent an estoppel agreement to all the tenants with his permission that stated that i was going to be purchasing the property And if they could give me their name, their contact information, what they pay in rent, when's the last time they paid in rent, things like that. So I basically took their and what they were saying and what he was saying, and then I compared it. And I had one tenant that was living in a two bed, one bath, and it was a six unit. And all the other ones were paying $500 a month, and she was paying $300 a month. She had lived there for 30 years. And so and she took very good care of the place. So what I did instead was I increased it by increments. So I think for the first two months, it was, you know, increased by $25. Then the next two months, it went up another 50 And we increased it over, I think, maybe the course of nine months or something to get her up to that comparable rent. So that's one way to do it. And I always like to include what are the market rents. So if somebody else was, to if you were to move to a different unit in that same market, how much would it cost to kind of show that I'm usually still below market rent when doing these increases? Plus, you'd have to pay your moving costs, change your mailing address, all the other headaches that come with moving, too. And I I really have never had an issue of increasing rent and giving getting a lot of pushback on it.
2: Is that tenant still there, the one that had been there for 30 years?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Wow, that is That is. The crazy longevity with uh with one person
1: yeah so now it's been i bought that in 2017 it was uh,
2: five years ago So
1: longer than 30 years yeah. she's um, been there yeah so 35 yeah. years
2: it, it's also crazy to think you know not to go too far off on a on a tangent but you know the, the people do rents for that long um like that that could have been a, a mortgage that was paid off almost you know um it's it's an interesting dynamic for sure
1: Okay, you guys, next up, we are bringing Amanda on and she is going to answer some of the Ricky reply questions.
2: All right, Amanda, well, welcome back to a Ricky reply episode. We had you on episode 255, but you provided so much value. We knew we had to bring you back to answer some more questions from the Ricky audience. So thanks for chatting with us again.
0: Yeah, excited to be here.
2: All right. So we're going to lob a few questions at you. The first one comes from Greg Carroll. And Greg's question is, I started on my five-year goals, and one of them is to be able to buy houses to put into a trust for my nephew and nieces and kids to pay for college if they choose to go, like Brandon did for his daughter. Is it possible to do that for someone else's children? If so, how do you do it?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's a great question, Greg. So um, you can put a rental property into a trust and have the beneficiaries be whoever you want it to be. It could be your own kids, could be like you said, nieces and nephews, uh, could be my kids too. My kids will, will uh, love, uh, would love to benefit from that too.
1: Amanda will provide her kids' names and social security numbers
0: for you guys to add yeah. and, <laughs> and not just Greg, could be anybody. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but in all seriousness, it's uh, <laughs> the the in the, the the it also depends on what kind of trust uh, we're talking about right so in our previous episode that we did we we kind of mentioned it a little bit um that there's various different types of trust and how it's treated for tax purposes so um what you're describing definitely could be done beneficiaries could be any way you want it to be but I think maybe a better or maybe a more flexible way to do it is to not put it in kind of a special trust. I mean, it could be like your living trust or it could still even be in your name or like your LLC name, Um, but really just earmark for the future cash flow or future equity to go to, um, you know, these various like kids and nieces and nephews. The reason for that is if the properties are in a, your living trust or your name or your LLC, then you continue to get the tax benefits of the rental real estate during your lifetime. And then at some point in the future, if your intention was, um, you know, pull money out and help them pay for college, or just even, um, you know, passing it to them eventually when you pass away, then uh, your the people who inherit the properties from you could get step up basis, uh, which is a huge benefit. It basically means that um, they nor you will be paying taxes on the appreciation through your lifetime. Um, but I love what you're trying to do, but definitely worth a conversation with your tax advisor to see. If it should be a trust at all, and if so, what type of trust might be best.
2: So what you're saying, Ahmed, is that Greg might be overcomplicating it a little bit by trying to set up the trust. And there might be some simpler ways to achieve the same goal of using the cash flow and equity from this property to pay for his kids and nieces and nephews college.
0: Yes, you're exactly right, Tony. I love how you summed up what I said in five minutes in five sentences. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why you're the host of the show.
3: (laughs) Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at DealMachine.com slash BP.
5: Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home.
2: Hiring, your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This
4: show is sponsored by Airbnb. find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Okay, Amanda, are you ready to move on to our next question? Yep. This question comes from Matt. I wonder if my renters want to buy my condo they live in. There are some benefits to it like no agent fees, no repair cost, no grace period when property is empty, waiting for purchase, no repair costs, etc. What are the best options to sell it? Thinking about doing rent-to-own, me providing seller financing, how that looks from an operation perspective, or just doing a regular sale. Are there any tax
0: benefits versus the other? Gosh, well, great question, Matt. There's so many different ways, um, so so many different possible exit strategies. So we can talk through some of the consequences of the ones that you listed. So um, if you were just to do an outright uh, sale right like you say you can skip on the commissions and you know great benefits of of doing um for sale by owner um that doesn't change the tax impact of it so if you wanted to you could do a 1031 exchange which means you selling this property um and then you reinvest the money into, you know, a, a, another rental property, and so if you're doing following the tax rules of doing it correctly in a 1031 exchange, um, you can get out of this property and then into a, you know, maybe a bigger or better property without paying any taxes currently. Um, or you mentioned maybe like rent to own or maybe like a lease option, things like that. What I like about um, the tax benefit of a lease option is that. Um, The the options money you get up front, you don't have to pay taxes on it until later on when the option is exercised. During the lease option term, you still own the real estate, which means you continue to get the depreciation benefits, the write-offs and things like that. Um, So it's getting more money up front, but also retaining the tax benefits because you still are the owner. Um, and then you mentioned seller financing as another one. So seller financing is, is, is good as well. Um, the key difference in seller financing is that uh, when the contract is executed, you've essentially sold the property. So you no longer own the real estate, meaning you don't get depreciation anymore, right? Now the the, the buyer has depreciation. Other deducting mortgage interest and things like that, but as a seller, there is still a benefit. Then um, the benefit is that you get to defer the taxes on the gain um, over next you know x number of years as you collect money. Um, from your tenant buyer. So, you know, if instead of just selling it outright, maybe you have a huge taxable gain. If you do a seller financing, you carry a note for five years or 10 years, you can defer the capital gain slowly over the next five to 10 years as money is collected on your part. So um, all different, you know, all different um, possible solutions with differing tax benefits.
2: So Amanda, just to, and me, I just want to make sure I'm following here too. So it, it sounds like the 1031 exchange could work well if Matt has the desire to quickly acquire another property. But if Matt just wants to take the profits and use it to, you know, whatever lifestyle, whatever it is, then probably going lease to own might make more sense because that's still going to give him the tax benefits of owning the property. And then he's not getting this big tax bill at the end of the year. Am I, am I following that correctly?
0: Yep, exactly.
2: Okay, awesome. I actually never really thought about the differences as a seller between lease to own and seller financing, but now it's almost more beneficial for the owner to do lease to own versus seller finance. So that's that's interesting. Okay.
0: Sometimes, and I don't know if there's a distinction, you know, a technical distinction between lease to own versus like a lease option, right? So, lease I mean lease option meaning like we have a we have a lease agreement and we have a options to purchase agreement. So you're a tenant but you've given me some money upfront to say okay at some point in the future you can buy it at a stated price. Um so and that's it's slightly different than like a lease to own, right? Where, you know, you pay and then after X number of months or whatever then you own the property. So that's maybe a little bit more like a seller financing. So that's to get into the woods, though.
1: <laughs> no, that's great that you broke it down. Yeah.
2: All right, Amanda. So going on to our next question here. This one comes from Amber. And Amber's question is, I'm looking to best leverage $98,000 in profit from a sale into a bigger opportunity for cash flow and equity. I also want to reduce my tax liability on that sale. Right now, I have an approval to only purchase a home at a minimum of $250,000 ARV, with a $200,000 loan with hard money at $187,500. Since my approval, the interest rate has gone from six and a half to the high eights. So Amanda, just to sum up this question, they've already sold the property, they made $98,000 in profit. So my understanding is maybe a 1031 exchange is already off the table because they've already completed the sale. So what other options does Amber have to get the best tax treatment on that $98,000 in profit?
0: Yeah. And, you know, the I mean, the answer depends on the timing of it, you know, in terms of like, when was this property sold? If it's still within the same year of us addressing this question, then even though she can no longer do a 1031 exchange after the fact... Um, She could still do what's called a lazy 1031 exchange, and that's just something that we made up. So if you Google, you probably won't find any definitions about that. Um, A lazy lazy 1031 exchange is basically people who've already sold the property but are looking for ways to offset the the gain by reinvesting into other real estate. So as long as you're doing it within the same year, so I sold property one and. Um, January of this year, but before December 31st, I buy more real estate. With my new rental properties, I can do uh, maximize my expenses and write-offs. I can do cost segregation. And the loss I create can be utilized to offset the gain on the property that I sold, right? Even though they're two completely different transactions, but that's just how tax law works. If you have a loss on one rental, you offset the gain on the other rental. Um, So definitely still possible to do Um, I know she mentioned the interest rates, you know, going up. And, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's not much that we can do as investors to control what the rate is going to be. You can look for cheaper financing. You can look at partnering with other people to make the numbers work out. Um, Or, you know, you just, I mean, you find the right deal. I mean, the best deal that you can right now, you can always refinance when the interest rates decrease again. Um, So, yeah, a couple of different options there, I think.
2: Amanda, something I I learned. Or, well, first, like the big benefit, obviously, of the ten thirty one exchange is that you you get to defer those capital gains taxes from the sale of that property. But the the challenge is that it, it it's a tight turnaround time, right? It's a tight time frame to identify that next property and then close on a property. Someone mentioned to me earlier this year, uh, or cash flows one twenty three now. So last year, last year, uh, <laughs> yeah. Someone mentioned to me last year um, about a reverse ten thirty one exchange. Have you heard that phrase? And, and if you are familiar with it, would you mind breaking down what it is and kind of how it differs from a regular 1031 exchange?
0: Yeah, definitely. So uh, in a 1031 exchange, the way that it works is uh, when you sell a property, um, and this has to happen you know, at the time of the sale. So maybe for someone like Amber, who's already sold, we can no longer do it. Um, because you have to have an intermediary involved in the transaction before you sell. So when you sell, you have 45 days from the date of sale to identify which properties you will buy as replacements. And within 180 days, you have to close on one or multiple of what you've already identified, right? So you meet those two rules. And there's other like number rules too, in terms of sales price, purchase price, and things like that. But let's say you meet those timelines, um, then you can defer all your taxes. But yes, what we've seen recently when it was a hot um, seller's market, that was really easy for an investor to list a property and be sold the next day. But now they're sitting on this, this money in the intermediary and they're trying to replace it a lot more difficult to find the right properties to close on where the numbers make sense. And that's why we saw a lot more of the reverse 1031 happen. So reverse 1031 just means that you already have your replacement properties identified and maybe even purchased. So I already know I'm going to buy this property on Main Street for X dollar amount. Um, I've identified it. I might have even closed on it. And then you list your current existing property for sale. So that's really the only difference. Um, and I, I encouraged a lot of my clients to do it the last year, year and a half um, for that exact reason, right? You don't want to be in a bind where like, oh my gosh, now I have to quickly look for a replacement property where the numbers might not make sense
2: and the big benefit of the reverse is that it takes away that time pressure because you've you've already identified the property you already know the property the obviously the, the downside is you have to use you have to come up with the capital to purchase that new property first and then go back and kind of replace it from that other capital but i think the ability to search for the property without the pressure of you know, 45 days, 45 days would like that allows you to find a better deal potentially. And you might get more value out of your 1031 exchange by doing it that way. Well, thanks for breaking that down, Amanda. Something that I learned that was new to me, I figured I'd share with the rookie audience as well.
1: And Amanda, if somebody else wants to do that, who should they go and talk to? Is it their CPA or should they go right to a
0: 1031 intermediary? Yeah, great question, Ashley. Um so, I typically recommend you start with the CPA. And the reason is because um your CPA will be able to tell you whether there's a gain on the sale of the property and if so, how much is the gain, right? I mean, doing a 1031, whether a regular one or a reverse one, there's costs associated. It's not free to do. Right? You have to have an intermediary do it. Um and like Tony was saying, there's um kind of the the downside of the the timelines and the stress of all that. So for some investors, maybe if the gain is small, they don't care. Right. Maybe it's like, hey, I'm only going to save a thousand dollars in taxes. I'm not even going to worry about it. And you don't really know what the gain or loss is going to be unless you talk with your tax advisor. Even for someone who like, hey, I'm selling Main Street property. I know it's going to be a gain. But I might have other losses from my other rental properties or my other business that I can already use to offset, in which case maybe 1031 um, is not really needed, right? So that's why I talk to the CPA first. They'll let you know whether it's needed, how much it'll actually help you to defer taxes, and then you can decide, does it make sense for me to hire an intermediary and go through those steps.
1: That's such a great point, too, as to what are kind of your goals or what are you looking to do within the next year, too? Because maybe you want to go and purchase your own primary residence where it's not going to be based off of rental income. So you want a year where you're showing high income. So you're actually going to pay the taxes on that profit instead of doing the 1031 exchange to show that, you know, to get approved for a loan. So. Just another great example of why it's important to do that tax planning with your um, tax professional. Okay. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this week's Rookie Reply. Thank you. Can you let everyone know where they can reach out to you and find out some more information about you?
0: Oh yes, um, KeystoneCPA.com is my website. If you want more tax tips and tax strategies, we have a lot of free downloadable resources. And um, if you just want to follow me personally and see what I'm having for lunch and what I'm doing on the weekend, <laughs> uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram, Amanda Han CPA. I'm Ashley at Wealth from
1: Rentals, and he's Tony at Tony J Robinson. And we will be back on Wednesday with another guest.
2: and Tyler and Ashley will be guiding you through each and every step until you're the proud, confident owner of your first investment property. Through eight action-packed weeks, they'll guide you step-by-step through those first questions, decisions, and obstacles that every beginner investor must overcome. So if you're serious about becoming an investor this year, head to biggerpockets.com step and join us in the Ricky Bootcamp. See you there.